0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Mary-Jean Chan and Andrew Macmillan. Andrew's most recent collection is Pandemonium from Jonathan Cape. He's also got a novel, Pity, coming out next year. Mary-Jean's first collection, Flesh, came out with Faber in 2019. Their second is Bright Fear. The book we're here to celebrate this evening. They're going to be reading from the book and in conversation, following which, there'll be time for buying books, getting them signed, recharging drinks, and that. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Mary Jean. Thank you so much, John. And yeah, good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. It's a real honour to be here to help Mary Jean launch Bright Fear, this luminous collection, into the world. As John was saying, it follows on from Flesh, that was published in 2019, that won the Costa Book Award for Poetry, was shortlisted for every other prize, I think it says here, um, in my um, biography. Um, and, you know, just a kind of cavalcade of other um, awards, which Mary Jean's asked me not to read out and kind of embarrass them. Um, <laughs> And then in 2022, I was lucky enough to, to kind of work with Mary Jean when we co-edited um, 100 Queer Poems, um, which was just the kind of best honour of my kind of poetry life, really, and, and a kind of great joy to be able to do it with Mary Jean. Um, tonight, we're going to hear from this, um, just this kind of miraculous, inventive, astonishingly moving collection Mary Jean's going to read to us for probably about 20 minutes maybe a little bit longer we're going to have a chat amongst ourselves um, and there'll be a little a bit of time to come out for questions um, from you all as well then we're going to finish off with another poem from Bright Fear before you all rush to buy The kind of sunshine bright copies that we've got here just next to me Um, so yeah just thank you all very much for for being here and I'm going to hand over to to Mary Jean who's going to read to us from their new collection.
1: Um, Thank you all for coming it means a lot to see friends and you know familiar faces and others who I haven't met yet Um, it's a real honor to be at the LRB again and uh, to be hosted by Andrew. um, He mentioned that we co-edited 100 Queer Poems and that actually was the honor of my life. But also the fact that we were doing that project really fed into the writing of Bright Fear because Bright Fear was written during the pandemic. Um, It was a time when I actually couldn't write for 10 months. I had no words left, Um, had no language for what I was experiencing, for what we were experiencing collectively but I was editing 100 queer poems and that was a very generative space to be in. And I felt that I was nourished by these other voices, you know, that I was a part of um, this queer community that extended into the the past and obviously into the future as well. So I wanted to thank Andrew for that. Um, So I'll start by reading from Bright Fear. Um, It's organized in three sections. The first section is called Grief Lessons. Um, The second is called Ars Poetica and the third is called Field Notes on a Family. And um, I'll explain a bit more as I go along. But um, I'll start with the first poem in Grief Lessons. Bright Fear, One. During these lengthening days of sunlight and bright fear, there is too much language, too little time. I am afraid. I search for desire indoors. My hands steeped always too long in soap. Then the wetness and the drying to allow once more for soiling. Another faint gesture at the world. I used to dream about whole days of quiet. Now I seek solace in sound, replaying canto pop from the 90s. On public transport, I keep my staff badge around my neck, hoping to ward off a fist. A young man from Singapore was beaten for wearing a mask. I can't help but remember his expression on the six o'clock news. I enter a classroom feeling what has come before, its inward twist. All fear is grief, how my mother wants me home, how tears come on like poems. Um, I'll try not to dwell too much on the pandemic, but um, I did go through SARS in Hong Kong in 2003. So in a way, it was my second um, experience of this. And so I wrote a poem about Hong Kong. Hong Kong, 2003. At 13, school meant mandatory medical kits, two face masks, a small bottle of hand sanitizer. We sang hymns praising the Lord through our masks, standing far apart from one another empty seats filling the hall. My father left in an N95, came home late with its firm outline on his pale cheeks. All evening, I waited for him to return so I could feel his forehead, listen for a cough. London, 2020. During the early days of the pandemic, they wondered if language meant anything when it was so clearly the body that faced an existential threat. Keep going, they told their body. One day they began losing blood. Their period lasted for 30 days. It was the month lockdown ended in the UK when people flew off on European holidays. Stress, their father once told them, can make you ill. It can make your hair turn white. They looked in the mirror that evening and saw many silvery strands sprouting like dandelions. The worst thing about this, they confessed to their partner as they lay in bed, is that other people, no matter how much I love them, are all potential hosts. Each night, they would dream about being in a room full of friends, then realize that everyone was unmasked. In the dream, bodies became repugnant. It was in 2003 when they learned that unseen droplets breathed gently into air could kill. People called it SARS. As a teenager, they learned this English term alongside other words like sacrifice, sacred, scared. Um, this next poem pivots slightly to a maybe more hopeful moment. It's a very simple one. It's about cutting your own hair. Resolve. Come home to this body, this unhomeliness masquerading under a pile of laundry where your birthmark lingers. Dearest, one day you will feel free to cut your hair, lush like knotweed, a head crowned in the lightness of summer light. And this is the final poem in the first section. Circles. I am not familiar with rivers, but during those months of bubbles when I did not hold anyone close, I took to wandering along a stretch of the River Lee, which several species of bird inhabited. I watched and watched until even the water seemed to recognize me. The same coots, those shimmering shapes their slender and agile torsos made. The same form I had glimpsed one spring morning on a friend's wall after lockdown had lifted. Vasily Kandinsky's several circles, a form he saw as the synthesis of the greatest oppositions. When I couldn't sleep or wake, I was saved by geometry. A commotion of coots convincing me to withstand the quotidian tug of war between terror and love. So this next section is called Ars Poetica and it might seem a bit grand and indeed I asked myself, who am I to write a series of Ars Poetica poems? Um, But in fact, I think this is the beating heart of the book for me because When I couldn't write, I started questioning what poetry was even for. You know, What can poetry do during a pandemic? What can it do during a time of crisis? Um, And I began, of course, reading other people's work. And so there's a lot of um, quotations in this section as well. Um, But out of that questioning of poetry, I managed to write this book. I'll just read from the different uh, poems so they don't have titles. Um, So I'll just read the number. Ars Poetica, one. The poet opened a clean word document, titled it Poetry, then saved it in a folder titled Nonfiction, then saved it in a folder titled Fiction. (laughs) Two, when I was young, I realized my body was something to be held back or kept in its place. So I have mastered the art of observation, how to watch faces for a frown or grimace Signs of Weather. Once a teacher came up to me in the school playground and asked me if I had any feelings. Your expression is blank, she added. What could I say? I knew how to dim any spark within. Years later, I left home for the poem, inscrutable house, constructed space, blue room. How the poets have named a heaven in which lonely meanings sit companionably beside lonely children. Ars Poetica 3. The novel feels like a springer spaniel running off leash. The poem, a warm basket it returns to always. As a teenager, I learned to minimize myself whenever my father's face transformed into a furious sunset. What does it feel like to not have to hide things like a small splinter of sadness or an even smaller need? I work too well with constraints, so I cannot enjoy the sheer amount of space a prose writer deserves. My therapist says it has to do with my relationship to freedom, something I find just as trying as prose. I want my reader to understand my protagonists and their feelings without my having to describe them in detail, the way a poet I adore once wrote about her brother, a gate and a cheese and mustard sandwich. For those of you who are curious, um, that poem is The Gate by Marie Howe. Um, I really love it, so would encourage you to take a look at it. Ars Poetica, four. At 18, you were as far away from poetry as you now are from the sea. A man once asked you where you found grace. You told him in a poem. For years, you thought touch was the tap running, your fingers braiding the soft water, or the shower spilling incandescently over a shamed torso. At an airport in Texas, a barista playfully asked if you were a professional tennis player, praising your shoulders. You were in transit to attend a slam poetry contest, yet you felt seen somehow. So you cleave to that small identity all afternoon, comforted you had a place in that brutal country. Later that summer, you returned home as yourself, so much lighter now, then left once more clutching a slim book close on the long flight to London, each word a warm hand to keep you from the edge of things, each hum to bring back, each line a hum to bring back the hallelujah. I'll read from the latter half of the sequence. Um, And this is a poem about multilingualism. Ars Poetica 13. As a child, I often considered the impact that falling in love with English had on my mother's happiness. She once said, don't think you can talk back to me in a colonial language, it isn't superior. I can't describe her voice when she speaks in Shanghainese it is sweet like water. Her language came to me as in a familiar dream. A lotus flower sinking into myself and blooming. During my first month in England, I learned the art and science of speaking to reassure. How else can I survive? It's so easy to be ashamed. I am asked why my poems are so clear. I'll confess. It's what happens when you want to be understood. Ten years ago, I found myself in Nice and learnt to dream in French, my mother's first foreign tongue. That summer, the sea was also my mother. The Bay of Angels held me in its polyphony, and I chose all my loves, Cantonese, English, Mandarin, French, spoke with a satisfaction I had not known in years, saw my relationship to the world through sounds again, till I was reconciled the way rainbows exist in rain. Ars Poetica 15. I cherish books because my mother first loved them. My grandfather found her a Chinese translation of Shelley's poems and Charles Dickens's great expectations in a time of famine. What my mother taught me was how to revere the light language emitted. My mother perceived that literature was precious harvest from wild fields of sorrow. A stanza I'd someday read, like those water wreaths glinting under the Canterbury sun that summer we visited. Each line clear as a reflection, each syllable robust enough for a life. Uh, in some ways, I suppose the arts poetic poems are also an ode to language and to poetry and how poetry has in fact saved my life. So. Um, I hope that comes across. Um, In the final section, Field Notes on a Family, I meditate on very similar themes to grief lessons, I think, in in the way they bookend the um, central sequence. And in some ways, I think this book is also in conversation with flesh. Um, I hope to extend certain preoccupations. Um, I still write about my mother. I thought that after mentioning my mother a hundred times in flesh that I'd be done with that topic. But of course... um, (laughs) There's always more to write about the people you love. Um, Hindsight. All the ingredients necessary for happiness. I grew up well fed, years away from conflict and its aftermath. When someone in the family knows sacrifice as the only currency, such knowledge seeps. History must suffice. My mother knew hunger, bred in the absence of a miracle, cannot yield more loaves. I will give myself the mango stone, save the sweet flesh for someone else. Save the sweet flesh for someone else, I will give myself the mango stone. A miracle cannot yield more loaves. My mother knew hunger, bread in the absence of history must suffice. Such knowledge seeps, sacrifice as the only currency when someone in the family knows conflict and its aftermath. I grew up well-fed, years away from all the ingredients necessary for happiness. Brother, too. Brother, brother, neither of you came after I'd arrived. My mother could not bear those long days when I behaved too much like a boy the plastic sword I brandished after school, the irrefutable proof. One day, she asked if I had wanted to be her only child. I wanted you to live, would have borrowed your shirts if you had let me, opened fire in video games, even though I cannot stand any form of violence. What happens to the mother who could not mourn her miscarriages? What happens to the child who escaped unscathed and is now burdened to live? Bout. At fencing camp in Guangzhou, sleeping with our heads facing each other on top bunks at the local university dormitory, I feel you shift. Imagine our fingertips touching. Think to myself that this is the closest I will get to love. Something so alive and present, yet irrevocably distant in the dark. The next day we fly to Shanghai for the nationals I lose my first bout, only to find you alone in the stands, distraught at having been beaten. My body moves till your head rests like a robin on my shoulder. We sit in silence for a while, then a sudden sharp pain on my neck. I turn to see my mother, who has flown here to watch me. The robin on my shoulder is gone. Let me, my mother eventually says, filling the space between us. And I'll end with two happier poems. Thank you for listening. Out. Can I be myself now? I asked my parents in a dream. There is a long silence that lasts for years, punctuated by half-finished sentences. This is how it is with family. One day, my mother said to me on the phone, we are one body, you know that, right? She meant me, my father and her. To disagree was to admit to my desire for cruelty, the severance that has allowed me to chisel a way out. Yesterday, as we spoke, my parents looked at me and simply said, yes. Yes, I asked. Yes, they replied. We love you. The sentence was complete, no longer half finished. The months ahead of me are wide open. Postscript. In the penultimate scene where mother and child are listening to one another, speak in spite of everything, the way an orchestra might play on bravely even when the audience claps before its time. You will want to stay a while in subtropical winter heat. As sunlight blazes through the fog of memory, you begin to wonder if the origin story can at last be transfigured, into the version redacted through the centuries, the one in which the garden comes alive, a queer child's vision of paradise where the trees are free to bear their multitudinous light. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Mary Jean, for that just beautiful beautiful reading um I wanted to start off with just something that you were you mentioned a little bit in the reading which is um just for you now kind of you know launching this new collection into the world how does it for you feel different from or a continuation of a conversation with flesh um that book from four years ago
1: I think the second album is notoriously difficult. (laughs) Um, Firstly, you wonder whether you will write anything else, whether the first book is a fluke. And the second thing is you almost don't want it to be too similar maybe to the first book because then people will think you've done nothing in the four years uh, in between two books coming out. So I think there was a desire to hopefully push my poetics Mm -hmm. that my voice would not sound exactly the same as that in flesh. Um, And I, I do feel that because during the pandemic, everything felt sharper somehow, like grief felt sharper, but joy also felt sharper. And I was noticing things like light more intensely, you know, how the way light would hit the water or filter through the trees, or, you know, when we went on those walks, I would notice light on the buildings much more. Um, And so I think there is an intensity to bright fear, hopefully in the language, as well as the subject matter, that perhaps is not quite there in flesh or perhaps the intensity has been dialed up.
0: Yeah, and you, and you said that really interesting thing, I think, in that first poem that that you read for us just then, which is um, there's that beautiful phrase that there's so much language or there's almost too much language at, at that time of the pandemic. And then you were saying just in the introduction to that poem about the sense that it, it stopped you writing for a long time, mm-hmm. that there actually wasn't any language. And I just wondered if you could speak to that kind of, I guess, that paradox or mm-hmm. that conversation between as you say, the kind of external world having all this language that's suddenly coming at us and actually maybe for the self, for you, a a kind of a lack of language and inability to to write back to it.
1: Yeah, I think that was the the kind of contradictory thing. Um, Obviously, there was the news. There was so much stuff that was reading and taking in and I couldn't quite digest it, you know. I couldn't quite make sense of it. So there was no language in terms of, I found it hard to write. But then when I finally, after you know, a sort of dry spell of 10 months, began to write, the poems were quite small. You know, they were quite chiseled and tiny things, tiny fragments. Um, So there's a poem in there that I might read at the end. It's called Answer, and it's 12 lines. Hmm. But initially it was like, I think I, I tried to make it a bigger poem than it was. You know, I tried to push it to like 50 lines. I remember it was a full page. And then I realised it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. And I kept paring it back until finally it's shorter than a sonnet, you know. So um, I feel like things are, and it is a shorter book as well. Um, but I hope that that doesn't mean that brevity doesn't mean that less is being said, you know. I no, think I that things think so. are kind of much more compressed yeah. in this case.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned as well, thinking about flesh and I guess the the step then into bright fear, this, this sense of what, what feels to me, I think, like a real experimentation with with form and actually just a kind of growing confidence of a voice, right? That this is just a poet who has real confidence in their ability and, and kind of a dexterity to kind of play with things. And so, you know, we, as people know if they've read it yet or, or when they get a copy, there's this remarkable um kind of range of, of different form of different kind of line of, of kind of play that that you're really kind of interrogating mm-hmm. and I wondered if that you know for, so to me reading this it just felt like a real kind of confidence of a voice but I wondered if for you it felt like that or it's just again these subjects you know these ideas of kind of grief but also joy and you know, of the family yeah. is it just that they find the different forms that they need to find, they kind of find these different ways of expressing themselves, or was it that you really wanted to push yourself to, to kind of really push at those forms, I guess?
1: Um, so that's a lovely question. So for example, I think there was a time when I wanted the form to almost propel me into language. So the poem I read just now called Hindsight, that's actually a mirror poem or a specular poem for the poets in the room. Um, so uh, for those of you who are not familiar, it's basically a poem in two halves where the first half is, you know, you've, you've written it down. The second half just basically is the poem read back to front, but you're only allowed to change the punctuation, um, but you can't change any single word or line. So it's quite a trick to sort of try to get it to mirror. Um, and I, I was quite proud, that was the first specular I'd ever written that I thought was a decent one. Um, so I think there were a few examples like that where, for example, the sestina, mm. um, there's a um, Petrarchan sonnet, for example. And, and I think the forms, again, they weren't token examples of that type of you know, poem. It just was that that form enabled me to say something that I otherwise wouldn't have said. Like the sestina and the repetition of those six words at the end really helped me say something that I was desperate to say. But again, had it not been in that very tightly controlled form and very repetitive form, I think it would have rambled a lot. It mm. would have become a very big, sprawling lyric poem uh, without the kind of clarity of thought that I think the Sestina helped me reach. Yeah,
0: so. I really love that idea of kind of form offering a kind of clarity of, of yeah. thought, actually. And as you were saying, like, in the Ars Poetica poems, there's this conversation with all these other kind of writers, some of which are quite um, subliminal, some of which are very kind of overt. Mm. And so, again, that felt like, I think, as you said, when you were introducing it for us, this real sense of maybe just one voice or one kind of form not being being enough for that kind of grand job of that. Mm that sequence and actually needing to draw on these kind of different voices. And I just wonder what it was like to kind of thread in those different writers, those different thinkers and, and poets who end up sometimes being directly quoted or named actually in that sequence.
1: Yeah, I felt like it was only true to what I experienced and that I was in dialogue with a lot of these poets. You know, I was reading Victoria Chang. I was reading, um, you know, Robert Hayden. I was going back into my sort of favorites, uh, Anne Carson, etc. And in certain poems, I actually name the poem in which I've quoted something mm-hmm. from. Um, I think with Victoria Chan, it was um, Edward Hopper's Office at Midnight, for example. Um, and in other instances, it's sort of um, Blue Room is from Anne Carson's The Glass Essay. Um, and then there's uh, Inscrutable House is from Elizabeth Bishop's Sestina, for example. And I also, because I teach some of these poems mm-hmm. um, and because year after year, you know, we, we look at these poems in class and I suddenly realized that I, I haven't actually engaged with the poem myself you know, I've taught the poem as an example of, you know, a Sestina, but actually what do I feel about the poem myself, you know, and I think that was a great chance for me to, if I'm going to talk about poetry, I might as well be in conversation with other poets.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the Sestina, which is, I mean, an astonishing poem in this book, because because again, people kind of find when they read it, but there's this beautiful line in it, this really great phrase where you say, I value frank uncertainty over firm knowledge, Mm -hmm. and it just, like, lines just really kind of stayed in my head, and it almost, I wondered, maybe this is pushing it too far, but a kind of manifesto kind of phrase for a lot of these ideas that you're exploring, this kind of idea of the, felt like frank uncertainty felt like quite a radical idea mm-hmm. against a kind of, we often think of poetry as needing some sort of firm knowledge. Yeah. And so I was just real I just wondered if you wanted to say a little bit about that notion of frank uncertainty yeah. and what it means for you in poetry and in this book particular maybe. I
1: think, again, i Tend to turn to poetry not to search for answers, but to ask better questions, perhaps. And for those of you who might enjoy uh, Rilke, Rainer Mariah Rilke's work, I mean, there's that line that probably is t- too often quoted, but he says, "Live the questions now, so that someday you'll live along into the answer," or something like that. And I always love that idea of <laughs> living the questions. And I think, obviously, during this very tumultuous time, I had so many questions, and suddenly things that I thought were certain were no longer certain, and so. The idea of frank uncertainty. I wanted to be honest about the things I didn't understand. Um, And even the moments of solace or reprieve in this book are quite precarious, you know, and something could shift and that could disappear. Um, You know, people can leave, exit your life, you know, for many reasons, and even the things you think are. firm or anchored are sometimes not. So, yeah, I think that was something that I, I wanted to express. And the, the Sistina form is funny because in the final um, stanza, you have to repeat those six words. And so actually uncertainty and knowledge are words I had to repeat. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like I had to use those words. But it allowed me, again, to say something I hadn't quite intended to say.
0: Yeah. yeah. And obviously from the title, Bright Fear, fear just in these different permutations of it, these different kind of iterations of it felt to me like um, one of the things that really permeates all the way through the book, these different ways that fear kind of operates. And I think both the way that it's um, the different directions, I guess, that it can travel in both those kind of putting that out into the world, the fear kind of coming back towards us, either as kind of queer people or during the pandemic and things like that. And I just wondered again for you, what was it about the idea of fear? I guess both as a word but a concept yeah. that was that one way of kind of mapping, mapping your way through these poems and, and through those years as well.
1: Yeah, I think um, slightly grim perhaps, but the word fear was uh, very clearly something I wanted to have in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was partly inspired by um, a line from Anne Carson, which I quote in the epigraph and she says, who can invent a new fear? And I thought so interesting, this idea of old fears, existing fears and new fears, maybe like climate catastrophe or um, obviously the pandemic. They're, these are things that are we're grappling with now uh, in the contemporary moment. Um, but I also maybe slightly to sidetrack a bit, I wanted to balance that fear out with the other reality, which is the brightness. Mm. Um, and I wanted to use brightness, again, both as literal brightness, but also as metaphor. Because, as I'd said earlier, the fear was very sharp and acute, but also the moments of tenderness and reprieve and joy were so much more obvious as well. And I think Bright Fear, partly I need to thank my editor, Lavinia Singer, as well, because Bright Fear was initially the title of two poems. And she had suggested that it might make a good umbrella title for the entire book. And so it was a holding title until I finally realized just how apt it was, actually, um, to encapsulate all the different contradictions and tensions that I was feeling in my poems. So many of the poems are they can flip from a moment of despair to a moment of joy. And and that was so constant throughout most of the time I was writing this book. So um, it's hard to capture two things that actually shouldn't sit side by side together. So the title is therefore ox- oxymoronic and it has to be.
0: I think, I mean, you write to directors to the joy as well. And I think there's often that cliche in poetry that it's kind of impossible to write
1: mm.
0: kind of happiness or impossible to write joy and that actually it's easier to write kind of fear or, or that's where kind of work comes from. But I just, like I've never felt that to be true. And mm. I think this book disproves that. And I, I wanted just, you know, if, if you maybe wanted to say a little bit more about that idea of, of joy, of both brightness, as you say, as literal brightness and luminosity that comes across in some of these points, but also a kind of emotional and kind of tender joy mm. that is infused in a lot of this work as well.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's almost a cliche that poets often deal with heavier emotions that, And sometimes you do wonder if if you're just feeling a a kind of undiluted, pure joy. Can can you even write? You know, sometimes um, I do wonder that. But I think I wanted this book to um, provide some sense of solace, which I think was very Mm. important for me. You know, during the pandemic, I did turn to poets whose work was not necessarily easy. And I don't think a poem has to be happy. If you know what I mean, the poem doesn't have to be joyful and going through something very simple, but actually, even if a poem is grappling with something very difficult, the way that language transforms that experience and the way that the speaker moves through the world, like that can provide a huge sense of solace. Like, for example, um, a a poet I love, I I don't know if Emily's here tonight, but Emily Berry's work um, has always been a, a deep inspiration for me and Stranger Baby and Unexhausted Time are both books that I think are deeply hopeful, Mm. even though they grapple with very difficult subject matter. And so I think that's something I was trying to do in this book, is to to write about joy, but also not shy away from the difficulty and and how hard that joy can be to arrive at sometimes.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned, I mean, just I guess as a... As a sidebar, you mentioned kind of Lavinia's kind of conversations that you had with Lavinia around the title of the book. And I just wondered, you know, you, you we kind of joked at the start about a, the kind of second collection or a difficult second album, but just how you'd found or what that process is editorially, I guess, with, with a second book, oftentimes as, as kind of debut poets, as new poets, we know that we need a kind of lot, a lot of help or someone has to kind of intervene quite a lot. But what was it, what was the kind of process like for you with the with the second book?
1: Um Yeah, again, I'm a huge fan of being edited. I think that, you know, one has only to take a look at the acknowledgements to know how many people it takes to create such a slim volume of poetry. Um, But yes, I mean, again, Matthew is here. But I, I really I think I'm a kind of poet who really benefits from being asked questions about my work. So, you know, the way Matthew edits is to really scrutinize every punctuation, every you know, um, whether the line break here works, whether that particular word is doing what it should be doing, and whether sometimes I was almost being too explicit about what I wanted the reader to take away from my poem, which is something Mm. I I can fall into. You know, for example, that second, uh, what was it? Yeah, the third Ars Poetica poem where I end on the cheese and mustard sandwich. Um, I can't take credit for that because that was a stroke of brilliant editing from Matthew. I had another, I think, three lines after that where I round out the poem. You know, there's a kind (laughs) of... (laughs) But you sort of, there's a, there's a, a gift, this is, the, this is the gift and take this with you. And Matthew was like, actually if you pair it back, mm-hmm. you really open up the poem for the reader to enter into and draw their own conclusions. And I often forget that. So I think I, yeah, this book has also benefited a lot from that uh, kind of a, sort of meticulous editing. So.
0: so I guess like that sense of ambiguity that you get in it there, or that kind of not kind of tying it up for the reader or kind of giving them that gift at the end. Like you mentioned that poem answer, which I know we might hear, mm-hmm at the end but I think that that to me has always been a fascinating poem from the first time I read it because it's called answer and yet there isn't one Mm. within the poem there's a question asked um, of the kind of speaker they decline to answer Mm. and then kind of exit the poem in a way or kind of exit the page and there's just a really interesting um, ambiguity in that I guess and I just you know if you wanted to say a little bit about that notion that poetry not being the answer but maybe back Mm. to Rilke's idea of it being the question.
1: Yeah I mean obviously it's, it's a matter of style right some poem uh, some poets tend to like to end on a, a sort of more resounding note and I think that there's power in that and there are some poems that require that mm-hmm. energy but increasingly I, I even in fiction um, I find that I'm more drawn to unreliable narrators or you know uh, books that don't moralize or kind of preach to the choir as it were and, and allow me as the reader to draw my own conclusions um, and create very complex, nuanced characters that I can, you know, I don't necessarily feel immediately I sympathize with them, but but actually I feel like I'm more able to identify with their flaws and, um, you know, the, the way in which they make mistakes. And mm-hmm. I think similarly in a poem, increasingly I think I'm trying to, even though I'm dealing with subject matters I feel very strongly about, and so therefore in this book in particular, I think it's quite easy when you talk about queerness and you know homophobia and racism to have a very strong sense of i want the reader to take this away and and know this is bad or something but actually i think they can draw their own conclusions so my job is to offer them a kind of language that they can identify with and and play with and enjoy i think i think (laughs) poetry ultimately should give us pleasure um it's not an essay in which there is a take-home message necessarily i think for me that's why i turn to poetry it's also so beautiful and Mm. and it Poetry should be a pleasure, basically. So I hope that I managed to achieve that here.
0: You absolutely have. And I just, as a really quick aside before we carry on, you mentioned reading fiction and people will know you've just been judging the kind of Booker Prize where you had to read 136 novels. 163. 163, I'm underselling it. And just kind of, you don't have to give us any tips, but um, what just that process was like or what it was like to sit with that many novels and is there a sense in which you feel that that Stopped writing poetry? Was it impossible to write anything in that time? Or was actually poetry a nice antidote to sitting with that many kind of works of fiction?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, we It was a very intense process. of I've never read 160 plus books in six months. So that's you know an average of 20 to 30 books a month. Um, I was editing Bright Fear throughout that. Mm-hmm. And I think it was interesting because in a way, I was so relieved to only have to focus on <laughs> a few words, if you know <laughs> what I mean. Like, like here in poetry, I can take my time, I can scrutinize the comma, I can look at the line break, mm-hmm. and that's enough. Whereas with an 800 page novel, you're looking at some and having to sort of judge it. You have to look yeah. at so much else, right? And there's so many characters, and at some points you, you forget which characters from which book because you're reading them so closely together. Um, so, the, yeah, poetry was an antidote in that sense. It was a relief to, to have that brevity mm-hmm. um, of language, yeah.
0: One of the things that, uh, just in that in that previous answer, you were kind of mentioning, you know, the subjects of that that come up in this book, ideas of, of queerness, of homophobia, of, of racism, and when we were editing the 100 queer poems together, one of the really brilliant things I think about your introduction to that anthology is how you kind of, through Sarah Ahmed and thinkers like that, kind of think about the the intersections of of kind of um, queerness with um, other kind of modes of identity, I guess. And I guess it, that seems to me something that is threaded through all the thinking, at least kind of under the surface of a lot of these poems, the ways in which these are, these different facets of the self are intersectional yeah. in that way.
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, it's, it's sometimes I think, difficult to tie these threads together. And, you know, when you're writing a poem about racism, you, then you forget we're also talking about a queer speaker, you know, mm. whose queerness is a part of that racism, you know. Um, it's, and, and sometimes, I think about the flip side of things. When we are talking about queerness, are we talking about a space in which only certain types of queer people are welcome? Um, so, in my sistina, there is a scene where the speaker is in a very queer safe space, but in fact, experiences racism. How do you reconcile that? You know, I think that's very real. Um, and yeah, I think I think reading and editing a hundred quirks poems, the poems that we read um, by you know June Jordan and all the all the good the good poets that we love um, was yeah. That's what we should have called it. I know it. all the good poets. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> Having a moment where I'm just <laughs> reducing them to that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I, I think it was it was just incredibly helpful because these mm. poets have already already done the synthesizing for me. You know, mm. they already don't think in that very simplistic manner about these different lived realities. You can be a woman, you can be queer, you can be black, you know, how how does all that come together? So it's not new at all. And mm. I think I'm just following in their footsteps, hopefully.
0: I'm gonna come out to the to the audience in, in just a second, but I wondered, um, you know, you read us that really kind of moving and I think incredibly powerful point about SARS, about that kind of memory of of being thirteen and, and the kind of father coming home with the the kind of outline of the the face mask on. It seems to me a lot of the the project in some of these poems as well is about this idea of how memory bumps up against the kind of present, or how the present invokes kind of memory in that in that way as well. And I just wondered, again, if you if you wanted to talk a little bit about that part of the process, how they're not just poems of recollection in that sense, or they're not just kind of anecdotes of something that happened. There's this real, really interesting conversation, I guess, between the layers of present lived experience and what that echoes back to.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, You know, I had never written about SARS and um, there was one poem in Flesh called Safe Space 2, in which I described the speaker washing their hands. And at the time, I had no clue that that was what I was alluding to until Mm. it started going slightly, we could even call it viral on Twitter, and that people were retweeting that poem. And I was like, that's so strange. But of course it was alluding to the washing of hands during COVID. And then I realized it was a SARS poem. Um, And so similarly, Hong Kong 2003 was not something I'd set out to write, Mm. but I suddenly realized that, yeah, the image of, you know, masked kids and also my father being a doctor is something I never dealt with um experiencing it back then. But but now even though I went through COVID in the UK and was not near my father, suddenly his his experience became so much more vivid for me. Mm-hmm. And I think I touch on the father figure as well much more in this collection. Um which is interesting because I had a question I think from an audience member a while back where they say you don't write about your father. Um, and why is that? And it's often <laughs> sort of interesting because you think people don't notice, but of course they they do. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, um, no, it, was good. it was a good question. and Clearly, I've tried to, to write more about, and, and not just my father, but of course the, the father figure and what they, what society wants fathers to be like. And um, there is a poem, an Ars Poetica poem, where I sort of meditate on the fact that perhaps I've never seen him as a figure who needs my, uh, needs my attention. Almost, you know, mm-hmm. they're so self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. The father is supposed to be completely, you know fine so it's actually the mother I'm more worried about but actually in this case yeah that's some that's some some kind of self-reflection that I think has come up through through this book. I
0: think that's just really interesting just really quickly that sense of you know not about your father or your mother but the the notion of the father or the mother as as ideas I guess or as kind of archetypal figures that that echo through this book and I think that that you know beyond the kind of personal connection to them it's just a really interesting I guess device for you to be able to explore certain things.
1: I think so, because again, you know, the mother figure in that poem hindsight, you know, the mother is supposed to be sacrificial. The mother is supposed to, you know, provide for their children and make sure that they're well fed. And um, so there are all these tropes that I think, um, again, gendered constructs of what, you know, the mother and the father are supposed to be like that we as children internalize as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something I, I try to and having read many novels about motherhood and the complexities of of being a mother. I think that has also inspired some of the poems in this this book.
0: So we're going to come out now to the to the audience. John's got a roving mic, which is very exciting. Um, and so, if people have got questions, do please raise your hand, and we'll try and find you with the microphone. Um, thank you very much for the reading. Um, I was interested when you were talking about forms, I think the uh, Mirror Poem particularly, um, and also sort of referencing Elizabeth Bishop's Sistina's, I remember uh, hearing that um, when she was writing One Art, that wasn't something that started as a Sistina, but she kind of arrived at that in the process of drafting. And um, I suppose I was interested to know whether when you set out to write a poem, if if uh, and I'm sure you know it's not the same every time, but you sort of have an idea of I, I want to sort of experiment with this form and the poem kind of emerges from that or whether it might be that uh, you begin to process a drafting and during it you sort of uh, discover what form it's going to take.
1: Thank you for that question. Um, I think I often begin actually in sort of free verse, you know, I just start by writing a line or a fragment. Um, but with the Sistina in particular, it was quite intentional because I think it's it's quite difficult to write a Sistina unintentionally and that you have to set out with you know the six words you're going to repeat and I think I set it as a kind of task for myself and again I think this is the benefit of perhaps teaching poetry is that you've asked your students to do this difficult thing many times <laughs> and I'm like I've never asked myself to <laughs> write a proper sestina so I think there was one day where I I had these ideas again sort of complex things percolating and I thought I, I have no idea what to do with them I'll try a sestina you know um, and that actually was a fruitful experiment if you will but there are many failed such experiments you know i've tried to write a villanelle that went nowhere or a pantoum that completely fell flat on its face and just gave up you know so um many failed experiments um but sometimes i think the form finds itself as the poems being written as well like with mm. answer it's just 12 lines and i've staggered it so it's like staggered tercets um, but initially, you know, it was this huge block. And then suddenly I, I was like, maybe it's a prose poem. It Has to be a prose poem. And then I was like, no, it really doesn't work as a prose poem. So I, I just, I think I, in poetry, poetry is one of the few places I feel free to fail. I feel free to just, just try, you know, and I, I know eventually that something will emerge. Um, yeah. Mm. So I hope that helps.
0: One or two more. If we go there, then to the back. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah. Okay. Sorry.
0: Um, I I think um, for what the because I haven't got the whole collection for Bright Fear, but I think from the poems that you read and in comparison to Flesh, I feel in the first collection, the the eye or the speaker or the eye, the lyrical eye, has a kind of veneer um, with them. And then in Bright Fear, I feel like there's more of a confidence in the eye, obviously. I feel like in the first one, it's more like lowercase i, not standing out from the text in the from the poems you read I feel like the I is very much like here I am like <laughs> do you feel that like when you when you're writing it like do you feel that mm. kind of is there some sort of a uh, internal evolve like evolution that you discover like oh no I want I want this I's voice a lot louder and
1: mm.
0: brighter thank-, <laughs> thank you
1: so much for that um observation I it's it's interesting because obviously I think it's it's difficult for me to be like, yes, I am more confident in this book, um, which would sound arrogant, but I've had a few trusted readers who have said that they feel that the I is more confident or, or that some poems feel more sure of themselves. And I think it does have to do with it being a second book. You know, there is a sense that I've done this once before. And once the poems started coming together, I felt that I knew what I was doing more and and again, knew that I was in safe hands. So if I was just really kind of pushing it too far, that I'd, I'd be reeled back in by my editors and, and trusted readers. So, um, yeah, and I feel like maybe also the experience of the pandemic and so many things that were happening, like COVID racism, And I, I did feel strongly that I wanted to speak about certain things. You know, I was reflecting on my relationship to English, for example, in this book. And I do that a bit in flesh. But also there, there are a few poems that are prose poems that read a little bit like essays in that I mm. genuinely just wanted to say, for example, I say, um, you know, love when socially accepted becomes habit, you know, and that is genuinely how I feel that, you know, did I fall in love with English entirely of my own accord? N- not, who knows, but also it was very much encouraged that I become good at English. So is this love just like being a straight person and that being easier? And, you know, sometimes these social structures determine what, what is easy and what is difficult and yeah there's certain things I'm quite clear about now I think and whereas with Flesh I was really trying to feel my way through those questions so maybe they came up as more as tensions as questions as yeah complexities yeah and also I hope that after four more years I would have improved slightly as a poet so so thank you for that
0: Um, and then just there on the back row I think
1: John yeah thank you for the beautiful reading um I was really struck by, you said that you took maybe 10 months when you weren't writing and like Flesh is such an astounding book and like I can't believe you wrote your second book after a period of what might have been block during a pandemic, like that's amazing um, and I, I know lots of poets who intentionally or unintentionally didn't write during that time and it's, you know, it's such a kind of central subject for poets. Mm. I'd just love to hear your views on on that time and how you felt about it and what, drew you out of it into this new collection yeah thank you um it's very kind of you to frame it as a as a kind of I don't know something I've overcome but um <laughs> it didn't help <clears throat> on social media a lot of novels novelists had already written their pandemic novel you know so instead of not writing they'd produced you know a thick novel uh ready to go so I didn't feel that I, I thought 10 months was a long time and I There were definitely many moments of frustration that I felt like I should be writing or at least feel that I could write because I genuinely couldn't. You know, I tried drafting things that would just feel like cliches. And um, what drew me out of it genuinely was reading other people's work. You know, that's why I think there's so many more poets and and lines from poems quoted in this book. Um, And also because I couldn't really read much. Like my attention span was not functioning properly. So I could only read like a poem a day or something like that. But even that felt like something it was i was holding on to a thread you know of language i suppose and eventually i started copying out some of these lines um, just to encourage myself but also just to collect these beautiful lines and um for example i was reading mary rueful and she said that a poem is a wandering little drift of unidentified sound and i just thought about that for days and i love that and so i had to include it and it actually enabled me to then write a poem about the red hot poker which I'd seen on a walk you know so I think Mm -hmm. it was very fragmentary very tenuous Um, for a while I didn't even know whether this would be a book of poems I thought maybe it would be a pamphlet maybe it would be the ars poetica poems might be some small thing in of itself and then I realized I had more things to say so it really it definitely wasn't a I am setting out to write a book it was I, I want to find my way back to language
0: I think the roving mic might have been put away mary Jean. oh no
1: okay we uh, could maybe do one more maybe one question more here I think
0: if we demand it just on the front row and then we'll hear a final poem
1: yeah um okay yep sounds good on yeah yeah i just had a question because you talk about the experience of having a mother of going through being someone with a mother. And I think some of the things that you write about, both in *Flash* and Bright Fear, are so ineffable. These experiences that you live almost subliminally and you have to be raw and, and vulnerable when writing. Did you ever feel like your English as your lingua franca and your your primary language for writing your poetry was insufficient in some sense? That you lived these experiences perhaps in closer connection with a different language and that that was what you needed to to explore an experience that you'd lived in the past? That's a great question. Um, Yeah, indeed. I mean, English, I grew up bilingually, but I never spoke English at home. So English is a native language of mine, but it's not my mother tongue. And I think it's not a coincidence that during a lot of the editing and finishing of Bright Fear, I was listening to a lot of canto pop. Um, I I sort of have a sort of nod to Canto Pop in one of my poems Um, and friends will know that it's something I, I, again, I had a completely, uh, I sort of stopped listening to Canto Pop altogether. And for a time in my teenage years, stopped reading Chinese books altogether because I was so busy acquiring English. It just felt I couldn't do both at once. But then writing about this book, as you say, there's so many uh, experiences and memories and recollections that were, that happened in a different language and so even though I'm not writing in Chinese, I needed that language in the background. Um, Faber has very kindly asked me to put together a playlist for Bright, Bright Fear. <laughs> and there are some Cantonese songs in there. So I think that's only fitting. And it, I think that having the, the songs in the background and sometimes in Cantonese, sometimes in Mandarin, sometimes in French as well, in a language that I speak a little bit of, but I don't entirely. And sometimes it's nice to have a language in the background which you don't know the word, you don't understand the words, but you can tune into the sounds of it. And sometimes for me, Cantonese becomes a beautiful song. You know, I, I'm hearing the sounds and the echoes. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Cantonese has nine tones. So it's very tonal, very musical. Um, and that also helped me, I think, tap into the, the music that I needed to write certain poems. So that's a bit of a roundabout answer, but thank you for asking
0: Thank you, and thank you very much, everybody, for, for these questions and for, for coming along this evening. We're going to finish momentarily with another um, reading from Bright Fear, but just um, thank you very much to um, the LRB and to John and all the staff for, for hosting this evening, um, and, of course, thank you all for, for coming along. Do stay about, have a chat, buy copies of Bright Fear, this brilliant collection, and just join me one more time in celebrating Mary-Jean Chan and this fantastic new collection.
1: After alluding to this 12-line poem so much, I'll read it to you. (laughs) Answer. At the poetry cafe, someone sipping tea once stared at me from across the room and asked, are you a man or a woman? I want to know. I got up, moved my laptop, book, and coffee. I eventually replied, I would prefer not to answer that. Excuse me. In deep autumn... On a busy London street, I want to summon myself to be free.
0: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward events.